Good morning. You guys are all tired, huh? There's coffee out there. Feel free to grab some at any point. Uh, my name is Randy. I have the privilege of being one of the speakers on our speaking team here. And uh, if you don't know me, you may have heard of me the last couple of weeks. Um, they like to poke fun at me. So I'm the infamous Randy that gets blamed for everything around here. And I know some of you are, are excited because today means payback. And I get to stand up here and, and spend the next 20 minutes or so roasting the other preachers. But um, I figure I'll, for once, I'll take the attention off of myself and, and place it somewhere else. So. Uh, we're starting Advent, and Advent is, as Dan said, this time where we celebrate the coming of Christ. And we do this in various ways, in various different traditions. There's a lot of rich traditions of it. And the way that we have discussed um, talking about it here is, is by going through four names that um, kind of illustrate not only who Christ was, but, but also who Christ came for. And so today I have the great task of telling you all that you are nobody. Um, and hopefully by the end, um, you'll realize that you're actually in pretty good company with that as well. Uh, I really can't think of a happier or better way to start the Christmas season than to talk about nobody in particular. Um, and I'm a good candidate for it because um, for a long time, I have not really been a fan of the Christmas season. And I know what you're thinking. How can you not be a fan of the Christmas season? And I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you. First off, Christmas is not all that fun when you work for a church. Now, our church does it, does it right, and they have the Christmas Eve Eve service. But for all my time working at churches, we always had Christmas Eve services. So as a single young pastor at a church, you would often hear after the Christmas Eve service, hey, Randy, you don't really have any family to be with tonight, so why don't you just lock up the church for us? Okay. So for years, I was a pastor in, in, in Portland, Oregon, a uh, youth pastor out there, and I would, 9 o'clock, 9.30, the Christmas season, we'd have done like four services, and they would end, and everybody would go home to their families, and I would have to walk around and lock up the building and make sure everything was secure, and then I had about an hour drive um, home to where my family was, where my Christmas Eve dinner was waiting for me in the fridge to be warmed up. Half my family was already in bed, so Merry Christmas, it was pretty fun. Uh, and then I moved out here, and I was a youth pastor out here for a while, um, and it was even more exaggerated because, once again, I heard those fateful words, Randy, you don't really have any family to be with tonight, so why don't you just lock up the church? Except they did a midnight service, so I wasn't getting out to like 1.30 or 2 after I locked up the church and then going home, and that year I decided it would be a good idea to fly out on Christmas Day um, which is great because everybody else is miserable at the airport too, so misery loves company. Uh, the next year, uh, uh, I was married, and I convinced my wife to fly out on Christmas Day um, so we could be at all three of the services, and uh, she said she'd never do that again. So, <laughs> um, But it was just an interesting time for me in my life because Christmas became this constant reminder every year that I was single, that I was alone, that I didn't have anybody, and so you might as well be the person who does all the work that nobody else wants to do, right? You'd think I would have gotten invited to Christmas Eve dinner, but instead I was stuck working. So it was this constant reminder for me of that. And I think that we have, a lot of us have that within us, where Christmas time 
whether it's because of family and issues we have or things in our life, where Christmas actually brings up a lot of hard things in our life, um, where it reminds us of, of loved ones lost or it reminds us of, of the life that we have that we're not happy with. Um, and at times it's very easy to feel alone and like we are nobody. And so I want to spend some time um, talking about what that means here at this Christmas time and what we do um, or what we could do in the midst of that together as the body uh, to make that a, a better experience, a happier experience, ultimately to give hope. This uh, week in Advent, we celebrate hope. Right? Hope doesn't mean we're not alone. Hope doesn't mean that we have no pain or no sorrow. Hope just means that we have the expectation of coming out of it. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Amidst all of the, the consumerism and family drama, the constant travel that comes with Christmas, um, people just get really excited about it. And those people just frustrate me, right? They, they're more like Buddy the Elf. <laughs> and I'm definitely more like Scrooge. Um, when I worked at, actually, when I worked at Two Rivers, a coffee shop here in town, um, you know those people, maybe you are this person, I'm going to offend you right now, um, but they're very adamant about putting the Christ back in Christmas. And so they very emphatically say to you, Merry Christmas, right? None of this happy holidays junk. Like they want to make sure you know. So it was my job, I put it on myself, that whenever somebody at the coffee shop greeted me with Merry Christmas, I responded back, yeah, happy holidays to you too. So, <laughs> That's how I treated Christmas. That was the fun for me in it. But it's funny because, you know, they have this Buddy the Elf thing, and I want to do this, like, Buddy the Elf with, a, like, a cross through it so it's no buddy for my theme, but Kimmy said it wasn't that funny, so <laughs> it's not going to be up there. Instead, it's the classy thing. Um, but we, we like to put on this act, right, that we are this Buddy the Elf, and we're happy all the time, and smiling's our favorite. Um, but, but deep down inside, I think that we, we sometimes struggle with that. And, and we, we put on that mask because um, we're afraid to wrestle with what's, what's deep down inside. Um, so hopefully we'll have an opportunity um, to do that today, um, to, to, to reach down deep inside um, and think about um, Jesus specifically, who um, I'll hopefully convince you was the biggest nobody of them all. And you might find yourself more in, in that. All around us, we see nobodies. Um, and the only way to reach out to somebody who feels like a nobody is to actually become a nobody with them. Right? We, we like to give answers. We like to pretend that we are somebody and we can fix problems. And we use words to do that. And, and oftentimes, um, words don't mean near as much as a hug. And so hopefully today, um, if you're one of these people in the room right now who is experiencing this profound loneliness this season, um, this sermon will find you in, in good company. And if you're one of those people who um, really loves this season and it's really exciting, perhaps um, this sermon will challenge you to, to sit with a nobody and experience just what it feels like to be alone at this time um, and to be hurting at this time. One of the uh, favorite Christmas songs that, that I have um, is, is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And uh, it's a song of hope. And it laments honestly about the position that Israel was in um, and yet finds this space to be excited about where Israel will come eventually. 
Um, and that juxtaposition kind of sums up my own walk with God. At times, I feel like, man, this is really hard, and I don't know if I can do this. Um, and yet, I have hope that eventually, when Christ comes again, everything will culminate, and it'll be good. But the word Emmanuel itself is God with us. And it reminds us that even though we may feel like nobodies, the God, the creator of the universe, actually came down to sit with us in that feeling. The song um, originally was written in Latin um, and was translated by John Neal in the 1800s. And Neal was educated at Cambridge, so he's a really smart guy. And he was going into the pastorate, and he was really excited about all the things that God had called him to do. And the powers that be said, man, this guy's really smart. He can have a lot of influence. Let's not keep him in England. <laughs> because he may do something that we don't like and we won't be able to control it, right? They were afraid that he was going to, you know, start a revival or something, and how dare he do that? So they sent him off to Africa, you know? They said, we are going to be a missionary to Africa um, because he was too smart. But he never wavered in his calling. Instead, he started an orphanage um, for, for orphans and also a house for prostitutes to help them get out of prostitution. Because his job, his calling was to work with what um, people saw as the least of these or the nobodies in the world. And so he translated this song, um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, um, and it became this, this, this kind of lament and this, this call for that. And traditionally, this song began to be sang um, once a week. Uh, they'd sing one verse a week for the seven weeks leading up to Christmas. And I want to mimic that practice today. And so I'm going to talk about each one of these um, verses. Each one, we're going to take four verses. That's four. That's three. Uh, and we're going to talk through them, and then we're going to sing them together. First, we'll have um, Elliot, we'll, we'll kind of sing it through us as we meditate on it, and then we'll all sing it together. And I know CJ's in the audience, and he's thinking this is a nightmare because he doesn't like music. Um, and, I, and I hear where he's coming from. Um, I do. Uh, for me, I don't engage emotionally in, in songs as much. I tend to be more of a guy who likes to engage intellectually in, in books. Um, but there's something about the history of this song and the story that it paints um, with, with Israel and their struggles to, to what are now our struggles that we have taken on that, that it actually does cause an emotional response in me. And it's one of the only songs that does it for me. Um, but I find that it just gets me outside of my own self um, and helps me to see uh, exactly what the song was written for, and that's to, to identify with people who are struggling. So that's what we're going to do today. So we'll start with the first uh, verse. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. So Emmanuel means God with us, and this comes from, um, we get this first clue in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, uh, where uh, the prophet says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. And that prophecy is once again revealed in the New Testament in Matthew, um, where um, they repeat it, and they say the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And then in parentheses, there's that means God with us. It was important for the authors to let us know that that's what this means. This is God coming down to be with us. 
So what does it mean for God to be with us? Normally at this point, I would ask the audience, what do you think it means for God to be with us? But I'm afraid you might get the wrong answer and that would be embarrassing because I've asked that question before and people will say, oh man, the other day, you know, it was Black Friday and, you know, the parking lots were crazy and I got a front spot. God was really with me. That's kind of missing the point there. Um, I even had one person one time tell me um, that, you know, it's, it's just really great to know that, that one day, you know, all of our enemies will be in hell for the rest of eternity. And I laughed just like that because I thought it was a joke, but they were serious. And we'll talk about loving our enemies later on down the road when we talk about anybody. Um, so I don't want to put you in that position where, where, you, where, you, where you might get the wrong answer and, and be, I'd have to embarrass you. But this concept of God being with us um, is not in the trivial things of life. It's in the big things. When Jesus teaches his disciples to give us this day our daily bread, that's how you pray, give us this day our daily bread, he's bringing them back to the time when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness and God is providing manna, literal bread from heaven, and every day they collect only enough for that day. They collect any more, it would mold and it would spoil And this teaches the Israelites an important lesson to rely on God and God alone for the big needs in their life. And those are the moments where God is with us, providing us with daily bread, the things that we need to actually survive, not with parking spots or vengeance on our enemies. So God is with us. Now, God is with Israel a lot. Captive Israel, right? That's, that's the, the phrase, you know, and ransom captive Israel. Israel is taken captive so many times throughout their history that they're always kind of the ones that are getting beat up by the other superpowers. Perhaps you remember some of those. Anyone show of hands just remember other, t- other times when Israel was held captive by someone? No? I'm not going to call on you, so if you just know, you can just raise your hand. There's like three of you. All right. I think you guys are all just scared to raise your hands. So do this. Actually talk about this one. Turn to your neighbor and ask, you know, when are the times where Israel throughout the history of the Old Testament was held captive by some dominant superpower? I'll give you like a minute to do that. Go. What stories did you or the person next to you come up with? How many heard a story in there at some point? Oh, come on. You're all talking. You all heard a story. I'm just going to cold call on people. What, what, what story did you hear? The Romans, right? So even during this, this time that we celebrate, like, they're captured by the Romans. What about over here? What story did you hear? Same one. All right. That's an answer. So it works. <laughs> All right, the Romans. What's another one? How about right here? Babylon, right? That's a good one. This is, we don't often talk about the captivity in Babylon, but we have Daniel, Daniel the Lion's Den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All that stuff is happening, um, and we'll talk about that. There's one more big one. Someone over here. You. Babylon, okay. What, do you got one? Babylon and Romans. Babylon and Romans. Two out of three ain't bad. Yes. Egypt. Egypt. 
probably uh, the biggest one that we often forget, apparently, um, is Egypt. <laughs> this, is, this is what this verse is talking about, is Egypt. Um, I was expecting <laughs> the Babylon ones to not come up, so you guys surprised me in that. But you remember how poorly the Israelites were treated in Egypt. They were actually slaves. Right? They, were, they were actually being held captive. There's a difference, right? Babylon wasn't the best of times, right? But, and Rome certainly wasn't the best of times, but it never compared to how bad it was in Egypt, right? They were, they were slaves. They were beat, right? They were forced to do all sorts of hard things, and they were constantly calling out to God, God, come and save us. And the scripture actually tells us that God heard their cry and granted their request. And so we think about these times. Oh, there's another one. Um, there was that time when, when, when God held them captive in the wilderness for 40 years, right? Uh, there's lots of times where Israel has experienced that. So when we sing this verse, um, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. If you were a Jewish person singing this verse, you had a very real understanding of what that meant. Because all throughout your history, that had been your people, constantly being dominated by other superpowers or wandering in the desert because you had disobeyed God. And so you knew the history and you knew what it meant. And one of the great things about our history is that it connects us, right? We believe in the Old Testament. So we believe that this connects us with the people of Israel. And so as we sing, we sing about that. Now, until the Son of God appear seems like a, a fairly kind of mundane, easy phrase. But what you don't know is that phrase is actually very loaded. It's loaded with, with some deep, hurtful things. Um, for, for instance, um, there weren't a lot of people that referred to Jesus as the Son of God. In the religious leaders of the day, they would call, uh, in Ma- Matthew thirteen fifty five. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Right? Or in Mark uh, 6, 3, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They called him the son of Mary. This is what the religious leaders called Jesus. Um, and, and it's interesting because you don't often associate a son with their mom in scripture. In fact, all of the lineages except for one that talk about people don't mention women at all because it was the father that had it. So when we look at genealogies, we see the paternal relationship being the one that's there. Joseph was not Jesus's biological father and the Pharisees are pointing that out here. In the Hebrew, the word is mamzer. They're calling Jesus a mamzer. Translated today, they're calling Jesus a bastard. They're telling him, you don't even know who your father is. How dare you speak to us about these things? Because you know what? Mamzers, in scripture, there's a place for them. Deuteronomy 23.2 says this. If we have that one, I'll just read it. Deuteronomy 23.2 says this. A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to his 10th generation shall not enter the congregation of the Lord. So Jesus, you're this mamzer, right? You don't know who your father is. You should not be in this temple teaching us. You're not even included in the kingdom of God. It doesn't get much more of a nobody than that. 
when the Pharisees and religious leaders who have studied the scripture and are awaiting the coming of the Messiah for years and years and years finally see him, they exclude him. They say, you're not even really human. You don't even belong here. And so when we celebrate the Son of God and we ascribe that title to Christ, there's some, there's some background there that we often miss because it wasn't all sunshine and roses. It wasn't always the title that he had. He was called any number of things by the religious leaders of the day. The worship team's back up here. Um, and what they're going to do is they're going to sing through the verse the first time. Uh, and, and I would ask that the first time you would just meditate on the words and what we've just talked about. Um, and then the second time through the verse, um, let's join in together. So Jesus, the ultimate nobody, he's not alone. The uh, second verse uh, that we'll sing today that we'll talk about um, talks about wisdom. And it says, Oh, come our wisdom from on high, who ordered all things mightily. To us the path of knowledge show and teach us in her ways to go. Now, for those of you that know me, you know that I've spent a lot of time researching um, the Holy Spirit. Uh, growing up, I didn't have much exposure to a doctrine or theology or study of, of spirit at all um, until I went to seminary and had doctrine of the Holy Spirit as a class from a Pentecostal professor. Um, and they know a lot about the Spirit. And it sparked a curiosity in me, and so I began to research spirit as much as I could. And one of the things that I learned uh, was that uh, Holy Spirit and wisdom are connected. And they're not connected um, in, as in like wisdom is a fourth person of the Trinity, uh, but they're connected because they're actually the same person. 
When we look at the Trinity or the personifications of God, we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But then in, in Isaiah and in Proverbs, it talks about wisdom. And it talks about wisdom as a person. And if we look back at the role of Spirit throughout the Old Testament, we see that, that the things that the Spirit does are also the things that are talked about in wisdom. They're the same things. In Genesis chapter 1, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This Spirit of God hovering over the waters is most like um, a brooding chicken um, protecting her chicks, right? Gathering her chicks, protecting against something that is coming. And as the creation narrative plays out, um, Spirit plays a huge role in, in creating and in sustaining all of creation. And when you look at the acts of spirit throughout the Old Testament, the same thing continues to happen. Spirit is always creating. Spirit is always sustaining, always giving life to things, right? When, when God breathes the breath of life into mankind, that word breath is the same word as spirit. So when you see words like wind or breath or spirit in the Old Testament, they're all from the same word. They're all spirit, and then these actions show up um, in the, the wisdom writings as well, um, of wisdom, um, the, the fact that the giving of knowledge, the giving of life um, comes. And so we know that the two are linked together. See, during the, uh, during the time between the two testaments, um, it's as if God went silent, is what they say. And uh, there's only a few writings that we have, and we don't have them in our Protestant canon, but, but one of the interesting things about him is these are some of the most prolific writings about the Holy Spirit. And it talks about how the Holy Spirit um, came near and passed by. And, and we, we, we know that from the story of, of, of Egypt when God passes by, right, the Passover that's celebrated. That's an aspect of it. Uh, but the interesting thing is, is the wisdom writers write in the intertestamental time that the, the Holy Spirit came down and found no place to pitch her tent. No place to dwell. It's as if the earth was not ready to accept the presence of God in the form of spirit. Instead, what these writers often write about this intertestamental time is that the earth was becoming pregnant with expectation. It's as if the labor pains were growing and growing and growing, and it wasn't quite time yet. And so spirit comes and then departs, and then Jesus comes and is God breaking into the world. And then that is where the presence of God literally comes to us. Overshadowed by spirit later on and the spirit given to us. And it's interesting because uh, the last time I preached, uh, I preached about women. And we were in the book of Ruth, right? And the wisdom is, is ascribed uh, a feminine personification in scripture um, which, again, is, is weird because um, women weren't often regarded as much during that time. And so uh, I preached and I talked about Ruth and I talked about uh, five women who, who really kind of break God's rules um, and yet are used in amazing ways. These are the women that are found in Matthew's genealogy, the one exception that includes women in their genealogy. Uh, and that alone is important um, but these, each of these women play a pivotal role um, in the world that Jesus comes into. So Tamar, uh, her husbands die. And then Judah, the patriarch of the family, fails to give her um, his youngest son as 
uh, a suitor, as a husband, um, even though that's what is required by law. And instead, mistaking her for a prostitute, he sleeps with her, and now she cannot be married to anybody else. The result of that relationship is um, a son who then goes on and uh, marries, and the lineage comes to Boaz. Boaz is Naomi's, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi's kinsman redeemer. He's the one that is supposed to, if, if her husband dies, then he's supposed to take her into his family. Right? But Naomi is left um, with her two sons and her husband, um, and all three of the men die, and she's left with two Moabite daughter-in-laws. And the Moabites are a people that um, come from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. So Israel hates Moabites. And Naomi, an Israelite, is living with them. She comes back to Israel with Ruth, one of the Moabites, uh, and uh, Boaz um, redeems Ruth as his wife, therefore redeeming Naomi in the process. A Moabite woman, something that was not okay by the laws of God. Boaz's mother is Rahab, a prostitute, who helps the spies when they come to Jericho. And then Ruth, um, being married to Boaz, has a son, Obed, whose son's Jesse, who has a son. You know know what Jesse's son's name is? David. And Jesus traces his lineage from the line of David. Uh, And David actually then um, sleeps with, the, the genealogy says that uh, he, David was with Uriah's wife, right? So Bathsheba, she sees, he, they don't, the genealogy doesn't mention Bathsheba. It just mentioned Uriah's wife, um, who was Bathsheba. Uh, remember, he saw her bathing. Funny how they named her Bathsheba after that. Um, and he had her husband killed. And he had a relationship with, with, with Bathsheba after that. And from Bathsheba actually comes Jesus. So you have a bunch of these women, these, these lonely nobodies in society who we actually trace Jesus' lineage from. You don't get to Jesus without these five women. Um, and you don't get to Jesus without these five women kind of breaking the rules a little bit. And then obviously Jesus comes. Um, he's born out of wedlock and uh, is, is looked at as a nobody in society as well. And so when wisdom from on high breaks through, it completely upsets the order that we have created. It completely says, you know what? You say all these people are nobodies, but I'm going to use them for something great. And that's what this verse is expressing, is expressing this idea that when wisdom invades us, the whole world is turned on its head and God is back and in control. So let's again meditate on the first verse and then sing the second together.
After this, the story gets even more exciting. The next verse that we'll talk about says, O come our day spring from on high, and cheer us by your drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. This uh, concept of a day spring um, is, is really interesting. It's it's exciting. It's, it's, it's celebratory, right? We are moving past this lonely exile and crying out to God, this, this longing for wisdom to come and be a part of us, and we're moving into, oh, it's actually happening. This is actually happening. This is coming true. We are recognizing the Messiah. In Malachi, Malachi uh, 4.2, uh, we get the concept of day spring. It says, but for you who revere my name, The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Sunrises are beautiful in Colorado. If you've never been awake to see one, you should try it sometime. And they actually wrote about them in a song, Purple Mountain's Majesty. Um, It's beautiful, and it's this this, this idea, this breathtaking beauty, this sun rising here that, that is getting rid of all of the darkness in our life, all of the despair that we've gone through and bringing warmth and excitement and beauty. It's, it's the lament of hope is being replaced by the anticipation of joy. And the, the, the writer, the author says, um, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Have any of you seen a well-fed calf frolic before? Well, you're in luck because I found a video of him. So, let's see if it'll work. So that's that's what it means to be a, a frolicking, well-fed calf. This is this is the image that this this verse is supposed to bring about in our minds. This excitement, this this joy, this this celebration. The song is building the Savior. God is breaking through our earth and becoming with us. Originally, uh, the song instead of saying "Oh, come," it said "Draw nigh, draw nigh," or "Draw near, draw near, come near, God." Um, And it's this beckoning God to come and invade our lives, to bring us into light. No more hiding, no more exile. Finally, union with the creator. And you know this word day spring because we talk about it at this time every year. In Luke uh, chapter 1 verse 78, it talks about the sunrise. Um, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the most high. For you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of their tender mercy of God, by which the rising sun, the day spring, will come to us from heaven. The day spring is Christ. And then the ever popular story of the wise men seeing the star in the east comes from Matthew 2, um, 2. And when, they, when the wise men come, they say, we know that the Savior has come because we saw the star in the east. We saw the day spring. We saw the great light rise. And so we know that the Savior has 
arrived. So when we sing about a day spring, we're singing in this excitement of a sunrise, the excitement of the coming of Christ. Let's sing together. tell you're getting excited because you're all singing louder. Our last verse that we'll talk about today. Uh, oh, come desire of nations bind and won the hearts of all mankind. Oh, bid our sad division cease and be yourself our king of peace. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 is a popular verse around this time says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace are all names that we use to ascribe to Christ, but there are other names to ascribe to Christ, other names that you know. And I want to take a moment and just pause. Um, and if you want to, you can close your eyes, um, but you don't have to. And just um, where you're at sitting, just speak out loud the names of Christ that you know or that you have heard or you have been told, ones that are meaningful to you. Just go ahead and you can randomly just speak them out. Lion of Judah, Messiah, Elohim, the Savior, the Christ, the King. Our, our series um, before the last one was, was called People of the Future. And we spent a lot of time talking about what this verse in this song means. 
our nation is not the United States. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom that we belong to. It's not necessarily all here on earth yet, but it is coming. And in this kingdom of God, God uses nobodies. The five women we talked about. A spirit who came down and found no place to dwell. Jesus himself, who was called a nobody by the very people that should have known who he was. This is how the world of God, the kingdom of God works. It turns everything up on itself. And it plays by different rules. So the question that we have to ask ourselves today is, are we willing to sit with nobodies? Are we willing to sit with these people like God has been using for all of eternity and be with them in their pain? to be with them in their loneliness. The only hope that we have to provide with each other is the presence of God, Emmanuel, God with us. God doesn't come and give us a bunch of words of affirmation. God comes and is with us. And that's what's required to give hope to people who are lonely. And so that's a challenge that I have for myself uh, this year. And, and maybe it's one that you'll take on to yourself, is, is, is to find people. And we have people within our own congregation who, who are lonely. So will you sit with them? Will you be with them? Will you be used by God in the way that these people we've talked about are? The way that we're going to illustrate this particular verse uh, is by taking communion. Because when we take communion, we're proclaiming Christ who is coming again. We are celebrating the fact that we are not of this world, but we are of the kingdom of God. And it's a concept that we're all very familiar with. And so as we, as we do this, as we take communion, and then we finally will sing this, we'll sing this as, as a celebratory joining together of the kingdom of God, of a bunch of nobodies in one room who desperately want to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. So Dan, will you come?